Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Uzma Naim, who is an OBGYN. She's also a Reiki healer and light worker. We're going to talk a little bit about how that comes into play in her practice as a doctor. She also is a woman with PCOS. So we're talking about PCOS today from the practitioner perspective, the patient perspective. We touched on fertility, birth control, tracking your cycle, and everything else that you need to know. And maybe your OBGYN never told you. Dr. Naim is a amazing. She gave so much good insight in today's episode. So I won't make you wait any longer. Let's bring Dr. Naeem onto the show. Hi, Dr. Naeem. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to speak with you today. Me too. Before we get started, can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do? So I'm actually a board certified OBGYN. So I have classical medical training, but over time recently, I've gotten more into interventional medicine. So I try to use some of those techniques as well and really teach about those techniques online and actually developed a course on PCOS because I really feel like as a doctor, sometimes we have 10 or 15 minutes to tell you important things about your life or your body. So this one course really goes into every single thing I could think of that a doctor could tell somebody about PCOS. Okay. So you're trained in conventional medicine, but then you also have the alternative healing techniques that you use. Do you combine both of those in the course? Yes, I do actually, because I, you know, I, I think breath work and uh, mindfulness go with everything. And so uh, it's hard to, for me to even exist in a place where I couldn't include that. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I mean, it makes sense and it's very much needed to not have just the one approach. Can you go a little bit into detail about what the alternative healing techniques include? So you mentioned breath work. What other things are falling under that umbrella? Yeah, so I actually got some training in in Reiki. And then after that, I got a light worker certification. And then after that, I did some retreats. And so it's kind of like what I do is a mix of all of those. But I, I guess if you could just describe it, it is just yoga or unity. And that's just using breathing and mindfulness to, to pull healing into your life. Okay, that's very cool. Now, in your medical practice, I assume that you treat a lot of women with PCOS. Do you find that there's an increase in how many women are diagnosed with PCOS recently? Yes, absolutely. I've seen a big jump in the diagnosis. I would say probably 15 years ago when I was doing some fertility training, we were, it was usually when you saw a reproductive endocrinologist, you would get the diagnosis of PCOS. Often it was missed. And I think there's a lot more research and awareness around it now. And so we're seeing a lot more people be diagnosed, which I think they should be, because if you think about the general population, you know, 7% of uh, women have diabetes and, and now even more, some reproductive endocrinologists would say that all of those people have PCOS and it could have been kind of caught earlier and they could have been driven down a lifestyle where they never developed the diabetes in the first place. Wait, so can you explain a little bit more about the connection there? So the new research studies for PCOS now 
quote, a 14 to 18% incidence of PCOS. And so that's one in five people, you know, before we used to think it was far less. And some of the diabetes research says that there's a 7% national population of diabetes in women. So I would take that a step further to say that probably those women who have diabetes did have PCOS because PCOS gives you a predisposition to develop high blood pressure and diabetes. Mm. And so my feeling is that a diagnosis of PCOS is very good because it's teaching you how to change your life so that those other outcomes never happen. Right. And when women come into your practice with symptoms, what kind of symptoms are you looking for initially do you use the Rotterdam criteria to diagnose and do you give them, you know, some education about what makes up the diagnosis? Because I find that many women who I speak with are not exactly sure why they were diagnosed or what led to the diagnosis of PCOS. And many times they come back at another time and the doctor says, well, you actually don't have PCOS. So do you find mm-hmm. that it's a diagnosis that often gets missed or misdiagnosed? What's your experience with that? So I would say historically, I really thought it got missed. Now I feel like people are getting diagnosed more and more, but they don't understand why or how they're diagnosed. And it's it's sort of a continuum. So if you look at purely medical research, they only use the NIH consensus, the Rotterdam criteria or the androgen excess. So from criteria from the androgen society. And so if you just purely use those, and these are really, you know, the NIH consensus was back in 1990. So these are some old guidelines. If you use those specifically, you may miss people, but in our just literature, many more reproductive endocrinologists are kind of giving the idea of how to diagnose it based clinically. And so really we diagnosed it clinically. When you look at nutrition research, it is actually even more in depth and they include a lot more of the insulin resistance when they're categorizing PCOS patients. And so all I need for the diagnosis of PCOS is to know that a patient's had irregular cycles at some period in their life, because you can improve your metabolism and have absolutely no symptoms as a PCOS person. So it makes a lot of sense to me that one doctor would tell somebody they have it and another doctor would tell somebody that they don't have it because they may be eating really well and working out and their metabolism doesn't, you don't see any signs of it. Their cycle's normal. They don't have their hirsutism, but then they may gain 20 pounds and then see a different doctor and they have symptoms of hirsutisms. All of a sudden their cycles are irregular. And then the Rotterdam criteria adds on the ultrasound, which now more and more OBGYNs are feeling like that's probably the least helpful because you can have somebody that just has great fertility and has many follicles and they don't necessarily have PCOS, or you have somebody with PCOS who doesn't have the strength, the pearl-like appearance on ovaries. And I think prior to, there was a lot of miseducation. I even had a nurse practitioner student and I was reading in her textbook that PCOS is cysts on the ovary. And I just was like, Oh gosh, how old was that textbook? I know, but it's terrible because, you know, people are reading this and I still, I had somebody today even who said, well, I have many cysts in my ovaries. Is that what, and I was like, no, no, no. It means you have 
follicles that are making a little bit of estrogen. And then when they're done making a, a little bit of estrogen, they're making testosterone. So they're all active at the same time, but you don't have many cysts on your ovaries. Yeah. There is a situation where women can have, and it's actually pretty common to have the appearance of the follicles, but without the syndrome, right? So polycystic yes. ovaries, is that what you're referring to where women can actually have the, the polycystic ovaries without this, the rest of right. the syndrome? Correct. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And those are just follicles that are maturing and they're normal. Right. And they're right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to go back to what you talked about just a couple minutes ago related to when someone eats well and their symptoms are under control, they're kind of like in remission. So it may appear like they don't have PCOS. So what is the relationship between like the genetic part of PCOS and the other parts? Because a lot of times there's this misconception that someone caused their PCOS, whereas, you know, really the weight and the way of eating, yes, it impacts, but the condition has already been there before. It's not that it was caused by those things. So can you talk a little bit about what causes PCOS and the, I guess, nature versus nurture kind of situation there? Yes, correct. So you already have these baseline genes, right? That are hardwiring you for PCOS and this predisposition to diabetes and high blood pressure, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer. But just like diabetes is reversible with lifestyle and exercise, we can say that you are functioning as a normal human being who wouldn't have PCOS whenever you have your nutrition and your exercise lifestyle in the optimal range. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean ever that those those hardwired genes go away. Right. Yeah. So they're kind of like activated or become more noticeable through what's happening with lifestyle, nutrition, movement, all of those things. Yes, absolutely. And there's even more research on epigenetics in PCOS and how PCOS patients were able to change their epigenetics. So epigenetics are genes you're changing by lifestyle and their genes changed or, you know, so there's different ways that your genes will fold up and not be used or be more expressed. And so it changed really through diet and lifestyle, which is really impressive. And so they took some of these patients and they did a keto diet for 12 weeks, or they did high intensity interval training for 16 weeks, and they were able to measure changes in the epigenetics. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's amazing. So what do you think are some of the lifestyle changes that are most effective for PCOS? So from the studies I've read, which really nutrition research is so much more useful in this actually than medical research. And the biggest change that I saw in the data was that people who did high intensity interval training or moderate intensity, they just really had to be active, had a big change at the end of the 16 weeks. And so many little things in their body were working better. So not only were this, was their lipid profile better, but even their heart rate variability. And that's important because people who practice mindfulness and those practices, which show that your uh, brain is functioning better, your stress and anxiety is decreased, is related to heart improvement and heart rate variability through mindfulness. And that was just amazing to me because it's kind of like a cycle, you know, you people notice the weight gain or the increased facial hair or the inability to ovulate, but you also have this 
increase in cortisol. So you have this constant low level inflammation that is going on. I mean, we've even measured elevated ESR. I mean, these patients are acting kind of like people with autoimmune diseases as well when uncontrolled. And that increases stress, anxiety, depression. So it's it's affecting every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. So you feel like the workouts plus mindfulness techniques can help reduce what specifically was reduced in the study that you looked at? So the heart rate variability was improved. Mm-hmm. The lung function was improved. Lipid profile was improved and BMI was improved. And so it wasn't, they didn't even use mindfulness. I'm sorry, I didn't explain that well. They just measured the heart rate variability. And so all these people did was exercise. They didn't even use mindfulness, but mindfulness does the same thing. It'll change your heart rate variability. Got it. So it's the same effect you're saying. Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if you do it together, it's even better, right? Even better. Yes. Always. (laughs) Okay. I want to go into talking about the menstrual cycle and how it's disrupted with PCOS. Can you talk a little bit about what women with PCOS are experiencing and why it's happening? Like what is actually happening in the body of a woman with PCOS that creates lack of ovulation that makes the cycle so long. And also this, you know, sometimes I see people who have no cycles, no periods at all. Sometimes I see people who have prolonged bleeding for weeks and months. What are some of the reasons for all this? Okay. So ovulation and the menstrual cycle are a beautiful, complex process. And it's a relationship between the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the ovary. And so in a PCOS patient, the way that gonadotropic releasing hormone is being released is at a different frequency. Okay. And so because that frequency is different, the way that your body responds to that hormone is different. So rather than having a one follicle that matures into a dominant follicle at around day 14 of the cycle, and you get a peak in estrogen and follicle stimulating hormone, ovulate an egg, and then slowly, if it's not implanted, the the lining will break down and you have a nice maybe 28 to 32 day cycle. In PCOS, what happens is you have many little follicles and they're all kind of, you know, in that competing phase, they're staying around eight to 10 millimeters, which is half of what you need to ovulate. And so that stage of maturing, they'll stay there for a long time. So a PCOS person may have a 60 day cycle because they just kind of stayed there and none of the follicles became dominant and actually matured. And that's because they weren't getting the right frequency and amount of gonadotropin releasing hormone to be able to do that. And does that come from the brain? Yes. Right. It comes from the brain. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the person can stay in this, like almost like the semifinals of ovulation. Like they're not, like they're right. not really progressing to the final stage. Like you said, where one egg is going to be released and ovulation is going to occur. Then why is there bleeding? Can you talk a little bit about the eventually, so the lining of the uterus, does it continue to thicken this whole time? Yes, it thickens this whole, very at a slow rate, it's thickening this whole time. So at some point, it's going to be thick enough to where it needs to shed. And at that point, it becomes dysregulated and breaks down. And so you can have a regular bleeding, you can have bleeding in any pattern when that happens. So you can have bleeding every two weeks, you can have bleeding continuously for a month any way that that lining can kind of break down and get out of your body. So, okay. It can make sense that the longer the cycle, the longer the bleeding, when it does happen, it's going to come and go, or it's going to be very heavy at points. 
Absolutely. I have a two PCOS patients right now that I have to give them progesterone every month because, you know, their bleeding is so heavy when it finally does happen that they have to go to the emergency room. And so yeah. just to give them that support without having to do birth control to just make sure that they don't go so long without having a cycle and have a very, very heavy cycle at the end. So can you explain what does the progesterone do and when is it a good idea to try and consider using that? So progesterone basically stabilizes the lining. And so if I give somebody 10 days of or 14 days of progesterone, I'm mimicking the first 14 days of the cycle. So I'm helping all of the lining stabilize and grow so that it all can grow to one level. And then it can shed all at the same time whenever I take it away. And, and that only works if the patient has the baseline some estrogen there, you know, so some patients will have to, that won't work. We'll have to go back and add estrogen because you need a little bit of estrogen and some progesterone to really grow. Okay. So when the person's taking the progesterone, it prevents the shedding from happening. And then when they stop, they will get a bleed. Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about when would you consider, so if someone is bleeding for like, how long do you usually wait? How would someone know when it's time to go and speak to their doctor about something like this? I think if you see a pattern, you know, that this continues to happen. And so mm-hmm. it's been three months or six months and your body's not really regulating. Something's going on. It's it's time to go in and talk to somebody. 17% of women will have one cycle throughout the year that's off. So it can be a little bit more or less than that. So I feel like if you have one cycle that's abnormal, that may not mean anything. But definitely if you're having two or three cycles or this has been going on for six months, then you need to have a conversation with your doctor to check it out. Yeah. Are there other reasons why someone may have prolonged bleeding? Yes, there's lots of reasons. So there's mechanical reasons with the uterus. And so actually PCOS patients are more prone to getting a polyp but anyone can get a polyp. It's kind of like a skin tag of the endometrial lining that can cause irregular bleeding. And it's a very easy fix. We just take it out. Sometimes you can grow a little fibroid with this, which is a benign smooth muscle tumor, and that can mess with the lining. There's hormonal reasons too. And so hyperthyroidism, the bleeding is unpredictable. And Mm -hmm. hypothyroidism, you may not have a period. And so really when you diagnose PCOS, you have to rule out that the patient doesn't have Cushing syndrome, so a problem with their cortisol, thyroid disease, and also a prolactinoma. So a prolactinoma is when you make too much prolactin and you won't have a cycle because it's really your body is thinking that it's breastfeeding. It's not, it doesn't need to, to have a cycle. Okay. Now, can we talk about the other situation where someone does not have a period? So they're not ovulating, right? And they're not getting a period for months. What happens in that situation in the body? So a PCOS person will, they make a little bit of estrogen. So maybe the average person has 60 or 70 micrograms of estrogen, and then they build up to 200 or 300 and they ovulate. PCOS person is hanging out at 40 micrograms. So we're much lower than the average. So you just are having just a little bit of estrogen every day and you can go years like that. And you just have a little progesterone. It's not really building up your lining very much. And so you don't need to shed it. And so I've had people go three years without a a cycle and they're just never really building up enough to, to have one. Okay. And, but that increases risk of cancer, right? It can. Yes. Because you can, in that timeframe, develop a polyp 
And you want to have a healthy balance of hormones. A healthy balance is always what is the best to make sure that you don't have cancer. You know, too much ovulation is more inflammation, increased risk of ovarian cancer. And then with the uterus, you want routine shedding of the uterus. Generally, you're not going to have that increased risk of uterine cancer. And so I know that 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 progesterone is used in those situations as well when someone's not ovulating and getting a period. How does that work? So it's giving them just enough hormone to build up for that 10 or 14 days that they're taking it. And then it's taking it away. So it's causing it instead of just steady hormones every day, you're having a change. So when your body detects that withdrawal of the progesterone, then it, it signals, okay, we need to have a cycle. So you'll get a cycle. Okay. So when someone has prolonged bleeding and they take progesterone, would they take it longer term as opposed to someone who doesn't have a cycle and they will just take it to bring on a bleed? So in two different scenarios, most people, if they take progesterone for 10 to 14 days, they should, their lining should stabilize and they should be able to stop, have a period where they stop bleeding and then they'll bleed. Now, people that have endometrial hyperplasia or lesions growth of the endometrial lining that is precancerous, we can keep them on progesterone for a long period of time. And actually it can prevent them from getting cancer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to move into talking about birth control. So I know this is a hot topic and I get a lot of questions from women who say, well, my doctor only offered me birth control is the only option. I'm not really interested in going on birth control. What do I do? So can you talk a little bit about why birth control is such a common solution, quote unquote, for PCOS problems? What are the different types of birth control and what are your thoughts about this? So I feel like 100% birth control is not the only option. I really don't want any woman to think that at all. There's so many other things you can do before you go to birth control. The reason that our literature encourages us to prescribe that is because it's doing a few things. So in PCOS, you're going to have elevated testosterone or a DHEAS, the precursor to testosterone. And so if we give you birth control, we increase your sex binding hormone globulin. So we're decreasing the overall testosterone in your body. Okay. And then if we give you birth control, you may be getting a little bit more estrogen, right? And so you'll have like a normal cycle every month rather than an unpredictable cycle, or maybe even years without having a cycle. But the very same research that talked about the exercise and how it was so good and changed your epigenetics for PCOS, that very same research showed that your cycle could actually come back in six weeks of working out. So my recommendation usually is just try this. It's six weeks or if you can do it even longer of your life and see if your cycle comes back or if it regulates. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to do birth control to start. And then another thing that doctors usually prescribe is metformin. And that's because of the insulin resistance associated with PCOS. And I think because the way your metabolism changes, it's easier to gain weight. And once you gain that weight, your your insulin resistance is higher and you're not using that insulin as efficiently. So the metformin is going to make you more insulin sensitive and generally help you lose weight. And then you become more insulin sensitive and you'll go back to ovulating and and have regular cycles. Now there is a natural option called inositol, which, you know, it's like the, you see it advertised all the time for PCOS, but really it does make you more insulin sensitive and it doesn't have all the GI side effects 
that metformin has. So there's two options right there. Start with the inositol, which is natural, and start with a workout and see if your cycle comes back to normal. If it's not coming back to normal, then yes, certainly, you know, you can try birth control. It's going to put everything back on track. Okay. And I know there are a few different types of hormonal birth control, right? Yes. There's so many different kinds. And so probably with PCOS, doctors are leaning towards maybe like the NuvaRing, which has more estrogen in it and Sprintec, which is a, a 25 microgram pill. So it has a little bit more estrogen than some of the other brands out there that have 20 micrograms or 10 micrograms. So PCOS patients aren't probably going to like those lower doses as much because we already live at a low level. And so that may not really help us with our other symptoms. And so those are the ones usually that you can, there's a NuvaRing, there's a patch, and then there's a pill and all of those have a little bit more estrogen in them. Okay. What about non-hormonal options? So non-hormonal options would, there is Invexi, which is, so this would be for contraception. So Invexi is a spermicide, which actually had great results in preventing pregnancy. And so it's just a, a gel. It's actually edible and you put it in five minutes before or 30 minutes before, and you can use it, you know, and not have to take a pill every day. And some of my patients that are really great about health and fitness love that because they don't have to take a pill and, and they're happy with where their hormones are. They don't want to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, another option is the Paracard. And so that's just, you know, that's been around for a long time. It's just a copper IUD. And so it goes in and it's, it can stay in for 10 years, but obviously it can be used for a shorter time period as well. And so that one also is not affecting hormones. So both of those are barrier method, right? Or the copper IUD is not? Well, it's not. Well, it's the copper is toxic to the sperm. And so that's why. Yeah. Okay. So would you say those options are... You're focusing on, right. Focusing more on because the gel is a spermicide. Yeah. So it's being not allowing the sperm to travel to the egg, but it's not, it's not hormonal. Right. Okay. So if a patient came to you with PCOS, which of those options would you recommend for contraception? I like the Invexi because I, I'm sorry, not Invexi. It's a, it's a, uh, Fexi. It's Fexi, but I like the gel because it's so easy. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and you just have it on hand and use it when you need to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about women who are not using contraception? They actually want to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. What are some of your recommendations as far as PCOS? If someone's coming in with a cycle that's not regular, it's not really predictable. They're getting a period maybe every 30 or 45 days and they want to start a family, they want us to get pregnant. What would you say you would recommend they do as far as increasing their chances? So I would start off right away with nutrition and activity because that can make a big change in six weeks. And mm-hmm. historically, what I've seen happen to women who, with PCOS who want to get pregnant is their OBGYN will say, we'll lose weight and then you'll get, which is such a I think a frustrating as a woman who who's been pregnant with PCOS, it's such a frustrating thing to hear that. Well, I mean, if it was that easy, I would have done that and then come to you. I usually start with I'm a little bit more aggressive because I I think if you wait a whole year, then it's hard to bring. You're already discouraged before you start treatments, and so typically I say to try the lifestyle changes. Maybe we'll add metformin, and if in six months you're not pregnant, then I'll add on Clomid 
or femora. And both of those are modulating estrogen. And so they're helping you ovulate a more robust egg. And, you know, for PCOS, they're actually helping you ovulate in the first place. And if that doesn't work, you know, then there's other options that you can do with a fertility specialist, such as IUI or IVF. Now, in the fertility world, usually when you see a PCOS patient, it's exciting because they can get pregnant. They have eggs. It's not a scenario generally where they don't have eggs and we're trying to, we just have to get them to ovulate and they can get pregnant. So that's the other thing I don't like is when PCOS patients think that they can't get pregnant. No, yes, you can. You really have a great chance and you just need the the right education and the right people to help get you there. Okay. Yeah. I love that you said that because that's, you know, very stressful and overwhelming when someone gets a diagnosis and immediately they're concerned about fertility and getting pregnant because they're not getting the right information. They're not getting the right education and what it really means. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope some people really hear that today. So we didn't talk too much about your experience having PCOS. And I think you bring a really unique perspective because you're a PCOS patient and a provider as well, obviously. So you're seeing this from both ends. Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey with PCOS and what's worked really well for you? So when I first realized I had it was probably in college and I just gained so much weight. I went from eating all this homemade natural food to just processed food. And all of a sudden I gained all this weight and I knew I needed to make a change, but I wasn't sure how. And so I just ran 10 miles a day. Well, at some point that didn't work. So when I got to medical school, I had, I realized what I had and I had to get some more education about that. And once I learned, okay, like uh, how to eat, I tried the paleo diet and that was a big change for me because it was back to eating those whole foods. And all of a sudden I felt like I could kind of function like other people. I think maybe other people don't understand how it feels to be so hungry all the time and how your weight can fluctuate so much. And so I try to save my patients that 10 year journey of how to work out and how to eat because it's hard to feel like other people, their bodies are responding a certain way and yours isn't responding quite as quickly. And then for pregnancy, you know, because I was already in this field, it it wasn't so, you know, I didn't have to go years without trying to ovulate. I already kind of worked on my rotation with the fertility specialist and understood how to diagnose PCOS. And so getting myself to ovulate wasn't so hard. Mm -hmm. Do you still follow a paleo diet now? I'm not perfect. I think life is 85-15%, right? So at 85% of the time, I try to eat really whole foods. And then, you know, I'll have my cheat days and things like that. Do you work out? I love to work out. So that's never, you know, I like good. Yeah. Yeah, I know you're super busy. You're a doctor, you you have kids, you do all b- a bunch of things. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you juggle everything? Because I know everyone listening right now, they want to do the things, they want to work out, they're really looking to manage their PCOS well, but life gets in the way, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My work, I would love to be that person that could just go to Orange Theory and have some or see a personal trainer three times a week. I don't do that. I mean, I go when I can and some I try to average eight times a month. So that means some weeks I'm not going at all. But my kids play soccer. So I just get on the soccer field with them and they run track on the weekends. And so I just walk around the track whenever I'm there with them. And and it's just finding those 20 minutes in the day that you can fit that in because life 
can't run on a schedule, you know, it's fluid. How are you with meal prepping and things like that? I actually have to like, so with my third pregnancy, I, I had gestational diabetes. So I could, you know, I had to really focus on it. And um, that is a, a risk to think about. So I actually pre-ordered meals. And so that really helped me. I used a company called Factor and never, yes. yes. And never had I lost weight in pregnancy, but I, and I don't say that you should do that, but I actually did because you know, that's all I ate was those meals and, you know, protein shakes when I'm on the go. Mm -hmm. Um, So now I have my go-to things that I can fix really quickly when I get home. So I try not to eat out and just do like a quick stir fry or something whenever I get home and try to keep the things that are good choices at home. Cause you'll, when you're in a rush, you'll eat whatever's there. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about pregnancy? You touched on that. So how does PCOS change during pregnancy and after? What are some of the things that women need to know about? So you do have an increased risk from my experience and my patients of gestational diabetes and gestational hypertension. So I think it is really important to be great about hydration and also eat a healthier diet from the beginning. Because if you can eat a healthier diet six months prior to pregnancy, that's going to be, that's the best change you can make because you're already changing those epigenetics. And then you're changing the genetics of what your baby is getting when you, when you do that, when you're starting those healthy changes before, if not, you're pregnant and you're just in it right now, then just try to do a, a healthier diet. And if you haven't been working out, then just start walking, even just walking after each meal changes how long your insulin is up. And, you know, if you look at the day is how many hours a day is my insulin elevated and you can add in little things like walking and make healthier choices that aren't going to raise your insulin as much, you're going to notice a big change in your blood sugar control in your pregnancy. And if you can learn that for a nine month period, then chances are you can really make that change for the rest of your life and never have to worry about high blood pressure and never have to worry about diabetes. Mm-hmm. Do women ever experience a different set of symptoms after pregnancy with PCOS? Like when, you know, the pre-pregnancy, let's say they were dealing with acne and weight gain and other things like that. And then afterwards, the hormones change in a way that the syndrome manifests differently. I actually see that a lot because people that maybe didn't realize they had PCOS or ever dealt with the symptoms, then that, that weight gain during pregnancy just pushes them to the manifest more extreme. Okay. Right. So they'll come back and say, I cannot lose this weight. I have all this excess facial hair. Was this just a pregnancy or is something going on that I didn't know about? So I, in fact, think I diagnosed some of it postpartum as well, because none of these things ever manifested before. Mm. I know that when I was pregnant, I had the least amount of facial hair and any type of hair ever. Like that was the only time in my life where I didn't really struggle that much with excess hair. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because your baseline estrogen is low. So then you had all this great estrogen from the pregnancy. Yeah. Cause I get this question a lot from women, like, what should I expect? I had a baby and sure there's the weight, but also emotionally, they're feeling different and they can feel the hormones shifting and they're just not sure what to expect. So if you think about what your baseline used to in PCOS is a low estrogen and progesterone. And then I guess if you're able to breastfeed afterwards, you're going to feel be in that same state because it kind of makes you have low estrogen and progesterone. But if you went 
through feeling really great during your pregnancy, and then you have a big drop in your estrogen and progesterone that is actually decreasing neurotransmitters in your brain. So you're going to have mood changes and you may even develop depression. And that's all related to that drop in the hormones. So what can be done about that? So I know that's a loaded question, but what are <laughs> like if you were to see someone coming in with a really significant drop in mood or, you know, a noticeable kind of change in their mental health, what kind of steps would you take? So the easiest are going for a walk, journaling, uh, making sure you have a support system. For me personally, I had a huge change after my first pregnancy and I was not, I'm normally a happy person. I was not. And I just was having these feelings of maybe my family would be better off without me. And and that was hard because I'd never experienced that before. So I actually ended up starting an SSRI. So I would also tell women, don't, you know, don't be, don't wait yeah. to start something because you don't want to lose out on that time of bonding with the baby. Those first six weeks of life are so important and you don't want to be depressed during that time. We want to make sure that you do something about it so you can really, really enjoy it. The decision to start an SSRI is a tough one because there's unfortunately so much stigma around it. But I think also personally, it may be hard to come to terms with the fact that, you know, you need a medication to manage your mood or maybe some sometimes it contradicts what your life looks like, right? Which obviously has nothing to do with how great your life is. You could still be depressed and have everything, right? You could, yeah. 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 I think that's a really important thing to kind of talk about because we have these thoughts or ideas of what it should look like when someone takes a medication and everyone's different and it can look a lot differently from person to person. Yeah. My OBGYN, who actually was a good friend of mine, had to push me into it. Because I I was just like, no, I can do it on my own. And she was seeing me just like losing out on that time of bonding. And after I took it, I felt so much better. But I did think like, I have the perfect life. I have the perfect life. And so I should be happy or, you know, and 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 it's all chemical. It's not anything you're physically doing. And once I took the medication, I was able to see that. Yeah. It's funny because, well, it's not funny. It's kind of ironic because people who have high blood pressure or have another medical issue, we wouldn't hesitate probably as much, but there's something about mental health and anxiety and depression where we think, no, we should be able to take care of this ourselves. Yeah. And absolutely. You just think that you're, you have this gift of being a mother. We can handle it all. I mean, at least that's how I really felt. And I feel like my, you know, sometimes I'll even, I had a great mentor in medical school, I mean, in residency, and he would say, start patients on SSRI six weeks before they have the baby. And I love when a mom says, okay, I'm good with that because I want to be good when the baby gets here. But most people feel that feeling of, oh no, I'm going to possibly expose my baby to something. And, you know, maybe the depression won't happen or maybe it won't be there, but it's so much better to be in a good place when the baby's actually born. Yeah. And having this conversation with your doctor is important. It's something that should come out early yes. as soon as someone feels a change. Yeah. And um, like every single mother who has a baby in the U.S. should be filling out a postpartum depression scale. And it's always tough when that's the day that comes out. The day that you're going home is the day that we find out that you don't feel good or, or things have been going on. And it's so much better if it's months before. And we can really help you with that transition. Okay, great. 
Anything else that you want to share with our listeners today about PCOS, fertility, anything from your personal or professional experience? I really want to say that PCOS is not, don't look at it as a burden, look at it as a, a gift because there's so many things about your genetics and your future that you can change and use it as empowerment, not as something to be upset about because it's it's really a sign for you to make some little changes in your life and, and you can really have a great, beautiful life. Yes, I totally agree. <laughs> Where can people find more about you and connect with you? So I have a website and I can definitely share my uh, website with you, Daphna, and my course and everything as well. Okay, great. And where do you practice? Because you you know, if anyone gets to work with you, they're lucky. We need more <laughs> doctors like you. Where do you see patients? So I see patients in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Okay. People of Lake Charles, Louisiana. You have a great OBGYN you can reach out to here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being here. 